Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. the money and how did you get the woman? What is it? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? My grandma was like, when he's inaugurated, we're gonna pop champagne. And I'm like, a, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, the grandmas of our nation can sleep at night again. But also, B, does that mean that she's not entirely sure if he's going to make it to inauguration? <laughs> Another William Henry Harrison situation on our hands. Kind of an odd phrasing. Like, typically, inauguration day doesn't really mean that much in the modern presidency, but go off, I guess. Maybe she knows something that we don't. Well, she did this. My grandmother has a, has a very, she's a much closer with um the powers that be than i am and uh she kind of made this when they when they finally called it uh when they finally called pennsylvania she looked at me and she's like well i was praying for that and i was like yes it was you (laughs) not the 70 million other voters it was you specifically but maybe it was i don't know she definitely has more credit on that particular account i don't have any i've been barred from entry to the store just like gene tierney in this movie at the Wilshire Department Store, or whatever the hell it's called, which doesn't exist, where she steals a $300 mermaid pin, which in 1949 money. I thought you were going to say how much that is. I don't know. Let's let's look that up. Inflation calculator. It sounded like you were building up to having that information. No, I was just like, wow, that's a lot of money. It says $3,280.84. And why is it just out? Why is it not in a glass case? If- well, the woman says, the, the sales girl says that it was in a glass case. She took it out of the glass case to... To, to show it to Jean, and then Jean asked about something else, and then while the girl, girl was turning around to get the other thing, Jean... Fucking booked it on her heelys. Fucking booked it, yeah, on her heelys. I must tell him. Right away. Are you all right? Hello, darling. What's wrong, dear? Nothing, darling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tiff. Hello. And Candace. Hello. And today we are talking about the 1949 noir, well, Otto Preminger special, uh, Whirlpool, which is um, it's pretty nuts. Pretty nuts movie. Yeah, it's a pretty kooky one. And that's specifically why we chose it. So, <laughs> Yeah, so through, you know, all fault of my own, um, we haven't really been able to put together like the November slate that we were hoping to do because I have school commitments and shit that make editing very hard. But uh, we thought we'd hit you with a bonus and decided to go with this one because there is some stuff that happens in it that is 
wild. We open in a department store, and Gene Tierney, the star of the movie, has just stolen a very expensive pin. Turn off your motor, please. Come on. Close that door. What do you want? Come on, we'll talk inside. I'm the store detective. Well, I haven't time. To... Won't take long. Open your bag. But I don't understand. Open it, please. I'm going home. I don't want to be talked to like that. All right, if you want it this way. Harry. Yes, Mr. Hogan? I just want you to witness this. See this pin? Yes, Mr. Hogan. Okay. You have a sales slip for that pin, madam? If you have, I'll take a look at it. Come on, come on. We're wasting time. You'll have a crowd here in a minute. And they bring her into the elevator and she immediately faints. Um, and then they bring her into, I guess, the manager's office. And... The Hell in a Cell challenge. And they're like, oh, you know, she's definitely faking. They all do this. And they're looking to press charges. Uh, and obviously, Jean Tierney is not about it. She's like, obviously doesn't want to get charges pressed against her for shoplifting um, because her husband is a prominent... Is it he's a psychiatrist? Or... Yeah, psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst. And obviously that would be very damaging to his reputation for whatever reason, who cares. Um, but it's at this point where Jose Ferrer just sort of walks into the room completely uninvited and is like, okay, I'll handle this. Now you can either give me your name and come clean with a statement or you can save it all to tell to the police. Police? If you know what's good for you, you'll talk now. You mustn't speak, Mrs. Sutton. You're still dizzy and too weak to remember. Hey, wait a minute. What is this guy, a lawyer? Mr. Sims knows who I am. Why, yes, but I'm busy, Mr. Corvo. If this woman is a friend of yours, the She's best no thing... She's a friend of mine. It's you I'm concerned about, Mr. Sims, and your wife, who is a client and a very dear friend of mine. I don't think she'd like all the trouble you're making for yourself. Why, you don't have to worry about me, Mr. Corvo. I'm in no trouble, I assure you. Not yet, but you're starting one of the biggest publicity messes any store ever got into. This woman whom you're badgering is Mrs. William Sutton, the wife of the distinguished psychoanalyst. Treating her like a common thief will bring more discredit on you and your store than on her. And convinces everyone not to prosecute because he postulates that Jean Tierney is not in control of her behaviour, that she's got kleptomania and that she is very ill and that he's going to help her because he's a hypnotist. Yeah, and apparently, according to him, it would be, like, really bad optics for the store if they were to prosecute Jean because she's so sick, I believe, is the implication. Because she's so hot. <laughs> she's so hot. And you can't send sexy people to jail. But part of Jose Ferrer's, like, rationale for this is, like he says, if she really wanted to buy this pin, she could afford 12 of them, which, again, would be, like, $36,000 worth of pins. And everyone's like, oh, well, that makes sense. Like, oh, it's okay to steal things when you can afford them. <laughs> Yeah, she's sick. that's the it, logic. It oddly feels like it's almost more of a, I don't want to say progressive, because obviously that has a lot to do. This particular um, excuse that they're giving her, uh, this rationale for it, has a, a lot to do with class. But it's also kind of an interesting tack for the film to take, that she's sympathetic because she's ill. And um, interesting, because we do have kind of earlier in the studio era, Really, prior to the production code, we do have a couple films that have to do with kleptomania. What's that? That George Bancroft movie, Blood Money, from I think like 1932, I want to say. Um, Francis D. plays a kleptomaniac. And you don't really see it so much in the post-code era. I, I, don't, I don't really know. After the passage of the code, that is. I, I don't really 
I don't know. It's weird. It's it's kind of a weird detail, and I know that it's part of the plot, but uh, at the same time, I, I I was kind of taken aback by it. Obviously, Jean, she's like, cool, well, I'm going to just get out of here because this is not cool for me, not vibing this particular situation, and goes home, and she obviously doesn't tell her very successful psychoanalyst husband who is... Richard Conti. Wearing a bow tie. Wearing a bow tie. That's how you know he's a good guy in this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because she's obviously keeping this secret, she begins to have trouble sleeping. Uh, and this sort of adds to the feelings of shame and guilt that she's obviously experiencing. It's at this point she runs into the hypnotist, Jose Ferrer again, who his name is Corvo. It's a weird name. And they just keep saying it. But anyway, she runs him into him at a, again at a party and he's just sort of, he does this kind of magic trick thing where he reads people and tells them they're like astrological sign and I don't know, all of their neuroses. I use a number of sciences in my experiments with the human family. For instance, you, Baron, are obviously born in November, late November. Yes, Sagittarius. But how do you know that? You are also a hyperthyroidic type plus a thalamus over-functioning. And I would say from the droop of your eyelids and the overstressed tone of your speech with a manic depressive tendency. Adding up these various informations, we get a man of violent temper suffering from fits of melancholia who within the past year has been preoccupied with the thought of committing suicide. But how can you know? I have spoken it to nobody except my tafilu. And how the stars tell you that? Not the stars, my eyes. They too are a science. Um, and, and Jean is very impressed by this his ability to get information. They go off into another room and he essentially hypnotizes her without her consent or knowledge. Well, she tells him that she's been having insomnia and he, I guess, hypnotizes her to sleep. Yeah, but like she doesn't seem to be fully cognizant of what is <laughs> happening. Because as part of his, his hypnotism, he says, you won't remember any of this. You don't remember this conversation or whatever. So he's covering up for himself. And you also have to remember that there's a scene prior to this where they meet for lunch and she's like going to pay him off because um, she thinks that he's trying to blackmail her about the incident at the store. And, and she she writes out, him yeah. a $5,000 check. $5,000. And he tears it up. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I don't need your fucking money, which of course we'll find out, you know, that is what he wants. Not her money specifically, but other people's money. And then he's like, oh, I'm just, I just, I just want to be your friend. And she's like, that's so nice. And he's like, I I'm going to, Constance Collier is throwing me a party later tonight. Do you want to go? And she's like, I'll be there. She's not a good judge of character in this movie so far. No, and all of the men in this are really quick to call her stupid, which I didn't quite like because, I mean, one of them's Richard Conte and the other one is... <laughs> Jose Ferrer. So, like, I mean, back in your box, chocolate. And then, but Jean's at the party, and then, um, forgive me, I don't know the name of the actress, so I can't remember it. Um, Teresa Randolph, who is played by, oh, Barbara O'Neill. So Barbara O'Neill comes up to Jean in the powder room and is like, look, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school. I'm a big fan of your husband. You know, he fixed my fucked up brain. But Jose Ferrer is a dangerous man. And you're getting involved in something that, you know, you're going to be way over your head. He's not what you think he is. And then Jean's response to this is like, don't you ever say something like that about Jose Ferrer again. Don't you ever talk to me. Have you known David Corvo long, Mrs. Sutton? Not very. I have. Of course, it's none of my business, my dear. I belong to no wives' protective association. What do you mean? I mean only to be helpful. I'd like to warn you about David. Warn me? 
Aren't you being rather presumptuous, Mrs. Randall? You have no reason to be jealous of me. I'm old enough to be your mother. Jealous? He's after your money, Mrs. Sutton. And he'll get it. He'll keep after you till he has what he wants. He never stops. He's lived off women all of his life. That's contemptible. I won't listen to you. I forbid you ever to talk to me like this about David Corvo. I warn you, I'll stand for it. Girls, girls battling over dear David in my bedroom. It's the most dramatic thing that ever happened in it. Like, she's only known him 24 hours. And this woman, you know, he's, 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 he's after money. He's a scoundrel. And, you know, she's just like, I find absolutely nothing wrong with any of the behavior this man has, has displayed so far, which is just like, again, it's just red flag after red flag after red flag. It's a red flag factory at this point. But again, Jean's not a good judge of character. So she's just like, shut up, bitch. And then Constance Collier comes and she's like, ladies, ladies, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no fighting at my big drama party. So then they sort of meet Jean and Jose Ferrer meet up at like this is it his hotel that yeah. he owns no i think he just lives at the hotel okay he lives at the because i was like there's no way this man owns a hotel um and uh before gene shows up at the hotel we see him get a phone call from barbara o'neill where she's talking about like some money that he owes her and uh something about her daughter we hear yes yeah he's He's very nasty to her and like, I mean, obviously up until this point, there's a lot of red flags, but it just continues. It's like an avalanche of red flags at this point. So when Jean arrives, they, you know, start discussing um, potential therapy, like hypnotic therapy to help Jean with her insomnia. But, but, um, but crucial to the story later on is the fact that Jean refuses to go up to his room. So they have this meeting yes. in the hotel restaurant. Yes. And... At this point, Jean is, she's very um, apologetic for how she acted towards Barbara O'Neill and she wants to apologize to her. She, she you know, doesn't know why she acted that way and is really insistent that she wants to apologize right away. Right fucking so, now. <laughs> right fucking now. So Jose Ferrer's like, oh, you can just call her. And so Jean goes and does that. And while she is off talking to... I don't know whoever it is. It's 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 a uh, it's the the operator, the hotel operator. And Jose Ferrer like takes the martini glass that Jean was using and puts it in his jacket pocket and then smashes the one that he was using and is like, "Oh, there's been a big accident. You need to replace these glasses. You got to get us two new martinis." Um, which he also is like swipes Jean's scarf too. Yes, he also which all of Jean's clothes are monogrammed with Anne in big letters. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of finesse to the monogramming. Like I think they're on her like robe as well or her sleepwear. Yeah, um, it just is a really big Anne. I also like, okay. I also like that evidently suits in 1950 were so fucking big you could just hide a martini glass on your purse. I mean, it was a, one of the tiny <laughs> martini glasses, like, you know, 40s martini glasses are it's tiny. A, it's a pony glass. Um, but also, when you smash a glass, you can sort of see roughly that it's not enough glass for two glasses to have been smashed. You can clearly see it's just one, but anyway. So he swipes that and it's all very suspicious, but, but Jean comes out and she's like, well, well, I couldn't get through. Anyway, time to go home. Uh, and doesn't question anything. And I believe they come to a that deal happens. where she's going to pay him 50 bucks a day to hypnotize her so she can sleep. Like every day of her life, I guess. 
Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and instead of her just like telling her husband, she has this confidence in him because after the party that she went to where he first hypnotized her, she went home and slept immediately and had a very good sleep for the first time since, you know, she was caught shoplifting. So that's why she's so up for the deal. Then it cuts to this very strange scene where Jean is walking through her husband's office or their house. Yeah, their house. Um, Their house to like go into this like secret safe her husband has and taking out these vinyl records. Recordings of his, his psychoanalyst sessions. Re- yeah. yeah, which is like, how are you setting that up in your like session, your therapy session? It's like, one second, I just need to put on my record recording here, like try and get the needle on and you've already had a mental breakdown because you're a housewife in 1949. It makes me sorry for him. When in fact, I, I should be angry. Very angry, you know? That I put up with it, like, some ostrich my problem with this is that it's actually kind of a cool setup when we see their house it has a separate entrance when jean drives up right after the whole incident at the department store and she drives up and then there's their their home is kind of off to the right and then there's an attached office off to the left right which has his name on the door and then i'm I'm assuming that that's where this record vault safe contraption is and then I'm going to skip ahead a little bit later on in the movie. Um, Charles Bickford asks who else has access to this safe besides Richard Conti. And he's like, well, my secretary and my wife. And the secretary makes sense, but he, like the wife. And then Charles Bickford's kind of like, eh, what gives? And he doesn't say it like that because that's how Charles Bickford talks. But Richard Conti is like, oh, she stores her jewelry in there. And the only thing I could think while watching that is like, wow, that you're making your tax deductions very complicated. <laughs> Because this is mixing, you know, that's not, that's not kosher with Uncle Sam. And I foresee, I, I'm, I'm an astrologer, I'm, I'm Jose Ferrer in this movie, I foresee an audit in your future. She takes the, the records out and it's, she's almost in like a sort of trance-like state. Yeah, she's in like a, hypno- a hypnotic trance and it seems like she was triggered when the, uh, the clock chimed a certain time. So it's like when yeah. when he hypnotized her earlier in the day at the restaurant, he had it set so that when the clock hit that time, she'd go into this trance and steal the records and uh, fuck around. And she continues in this trance. She drives in this trance-like state to Barbara O'Neill's house where she finds Barbara O'Neill dead and then goes to poke the fire because a log has fallen down and it's at that point where they aren't police that come in they're like security guards it's like a gated community security detail i think comes in they say she triggered the silent alarm when she came in and she's also stashed she stashed the records um of barbara o'neill's sessions with her husband in the coat closet in barbara o'neill's house the police come in and so jane obviously sort of wakes up a little bit from her trance and is just at a loss to understand what is happening. And the police arrive and obviously she's arrested because she's there with a dead body. You know, what possible other explanation could there be? Right before she sort of comes back into herself, she confesses that she hates Barbara O'Neill. Formal statement given by Ann Sutton, resident of Westwood, California. Witnessed by Lieutenant James Colton, Sergeant Robert Jeffries, 
And Dr. Peter DeVal, psychiatrist, the Los Angeles Police Station, City Hall, 11.20 p.m., June 3rd, 1949. Question. What is your name, please? Answer, Mrs. William Sutton. Question. Where do you live? Answer, 725 Willow Drive. Question. What time did you leave your house this evening? Answer, I don't remember. Question. Now, will you tell us why you went to Mrs. Teresa Randolph's house? Answer, I don't know. Now, Mrs. Sutton, will you please tell us how did you get into the house? That is, the home of Mrs. Randolph. Answer, I don't remember. Question. Do you know that Mrs. Randolph was strangled to death between the hours of 9 and 10 o'clock tonight? Answer, yes, I know. Do you admit, Mrs. Sutton, that the scarf found around Mrs. Randolph's neck and now displayed before you is yours? Answer, yes, it is my scarf. Question. This pin with the clasp broken was found on the floor near the murdered body. Did you drop it while you were strangling Teresa Randolph? Answer, I don't know. Question. Had you any reason for hating Mrs. Randolph? Answer, yes. That's not true. I didn't hate her. But you said you did. I heard you. I couldn't have. I don't remember going there, I tell you. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't. So it's all obviously a you know open shut case. She came here and obviously killed Barbara O'Dell because she was jealous of her for whatever reason, and she's yeah arrested. And this is where Charles Bickford comes in, and he's the like detective who, to me, he looks like if Richard Widmark had like if he was a pumpkin that had rotted. <laughs> he looks really bad in this. Yeah, <laughs> he has like some crazy like tramp hair. I don't know like what is going on and the horrible thing about that hair is that that's what charles bickford's hair always looked like you know if you look up pictures of charles bickford from the early 30s when you know he was a name it's like he looks like that then did they just did he just not like using brill cream what's the they just let his freak flag fly you know (laughs) he didn't have to repress it the way that you know cornell wilde did or whomever joseph cotton he was just allowed to just go out there and just have a whole Krusty the Clown thing going on. And I respect that. I, he also punched DeMille in the face once, which I can also respect. Nobody talks about Charles Bickford anymore. <laughs> That's true. He was he was, a, he was a fairly big star, a fairly important actor at this point in time. But, you know, no one, no one talks about him anymore. I wish no one talked about Jose Ferrer anymore. Do no they? No one really does, I guess. Yeah, I don't think they do. He gave us Mel. How are he and Mel Ferrer related? No relation. He and Jose Ferrer are not related. Wow. So he did not give us Mel. <laughs> he didn't give us Mel. That is actually astonishing to me. Wow. I'm actually very surprised by that. But, like, you know, the, Jose Ferrer, I, I always say this, I understand in the historical context, again, Jose Ferrer was the first Latino to win an acting Oscar. Very cool. Just don't really get it. Don't really get it. Um, and the man had a very large ego. I don't understand the people who find Jose Ferrer sexually attractive. There's got to be someone out there. He did have a lot of children. Seek Jesus. Go into his loving arms, Rosemary Clooney. And Jean is arrested. There's a lot of incriminating details that the police find. And so the police are just like, wow, slam dunk. She's guilty. And Richard Conti comes in and is like, so have you been having an affair? Like, what's the, uh, the go? Because... Charles Bickford is convinced that Jean is responsible for this. She's been having an affair with Jose Ferrer, which obviously demonstrates that Bickford is not a very good police officer because who would have an affair? Like, if you're Jean Tierney, 
Anyway, to that point, we never see Charles Bickford do any of the police work himself. He relies a lot on other people doing work for him, which it was deeply annoying to see. Yeah, like Richard Conti drags him off to the scene of the crime, and Bickford's like, well, I guess I'll come along and let you sniff out whatever you think. Like, I don't think you're supposed to be colluding with the husband of the suspect. Yeah, I don't think he's a very good police officer. Yeah, I don't think he's following procedure at all. He's going to lose his pension. And from the looks of it, he's not that far off it. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously they, the other potential suspect would have been Jose Ferrer, but the twist there is that he has an alibi. His alibi is that he was having gallbladder surgery and was recovering from surgery at the time of the murder. I don't like to interfere, Doctor. Go right ahead. When was Mr. Corvo operated on? 2 p.m. yesterday. That's about 16 hours ago. Yes. You were present during the surgery? I assisted Dr. Winslow. What surgery was done? Gallbladder removal. The doctor says that Jose Ferrer has caught some kind of... He's got some kind of infection that he's you know, running a fever, but he's like, it's nothing that penicillin can't knock out. I'm like, man, the scariest thing in this movie is the concept of having surgery in 1949. Yeah, there's a line from the surgeon where he says that he had to do a lot of sewing inside, which is just the worst. Yeah, and he calls it a stitch infection. The fever's up. This indicates an infection. Yes, went up at night. I had to do a lot of sewing inside. It may be a stitch infection. I think it's around this point where Richard Conti is like, he takes Bickford aside and he's been kind of going back and forth on whether or not he thinks Gene did it. Like he's he's very inconsistent there. But um, now he's like determined that Gene definitely didn't do it because Barbara O'Neill was his patient. And she told him about this like extortion scam, I guess, that Ferrer was running on Barbara O'Neill with her daughter. Which is like, shouldn't that have been the immediate red flag? Yeah, <laughs> he might have brought that up earlier. And then when Conti takes Bickford to his record vault and he opens it up and like, surprise, surprise, the records aren't there. And then he's explaining to Bickford who has access to the vault. He's like, oh, just, you know, me and my secretary and my wife. And Bickford's like, well, none of the above could possibly have stolen it. Not like, you know, implying that Conti's making it up and these records don't exist. And not the fact that, you know, Gene Tierney, as established by the entire narrative thus far, <laughs> is a kleptomaniac. <laughs> Even if she wasn't sleepwalking, she would have stolen it anyway. That's the whole point of the movie. I'm just, I, that was a big, that was one of those plot holes that's like big enough, you know, for the whole crew to fall into. Obviously, Charles Bickford is not buying it, and so they go back to the police station, and then suddenly Richard Conte, like, flips right. on Gene. He's like, well, I guess I guess if they're gone, then that's it. She must be guilty. And it's like, you were there. You were at the session. At this point, Gene is like, oh, well, everything is is ruined. Obviously, I should just come clean and tell everybody. So she tells her lawyer and the police, because Charles Bickford, like, again, not following procedure, doesn't let her have a private moment with her lawyer. She tells them about her relationship with Jose Freire and they are still convinced that she was having an affair, even though she's steadfast in her denial of that. She's never been up to his room. It was only ever to help her sleep uh, and that she is a kleptomaniac and that she developed this kleptomania because of her childhood, living in poverty, never being able to have the things that she wanted. 
and that when her father died, he tied up all his money so that she couldn't access it. Um, okay, my my problem with this though is that it's not so much that she lived in poverty, just that her father didn't let her spend money on stuff. Like she didn't have an allowance, and yeah, she couldn't buy dresses. She couldn't buy dresses. I did it before, stole in school when my father wouldn't let me spend money, and even after he died, he tied it all up in a trust fund, thousands and thousands of dollars. But I could never have a new dress or have anything I wanted. That's how I fooled my father, by stealing. He didn't love me. He thought he did, but he didn't. Yeah, and that she, he put her money into a trust fund, which again, coming from, you know, our perspective, is like, <laughs> shut the fuck up, get a real problem, you know. And that Jean now replicates this behavior while married to, to Conti, because she has this line about how, you know, well, Conti actually has a line later on in the movie about how, like, when they first got married, he wanted her to live as a poor doctor's wife and not spend the money from her trust fund. And so then that stress of not being able to buy things, I guess, is then what sends her back into this spiral of stealing shit for no reason. And it's like kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, the kleptomania sort of plot doesn't pay off in the way that you perhaps want it to. I think it is played sympathetically, though, because they at least attempt it to give some kind of meaning to it, not just, oh, she's a kleptomaniac. I think part of this, and this is just speculation, whatever, is maybe potentially lent a little bit of context, maybe by obviously a wonderful performance from Jean, but also that kind of like mirroring real life extent with Jean's own brushes with severe mental illness. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, um, especially at this point in her life, but I, I the parallels... The parallels, sis. They're there. Well, when Conti finds out about the hypnotism, he's like, oh shit. And he has this epiphany and he's like, oh fuck, he hypnotized my wife. But Bickford's like, nah, uh, I don't buy that. And then he's like, but what if he hypnotized himself? <laughs> okay, this is where it gets really good. This is the most bonkers part of the movie. It's just like, okay, well, his alibi was that he was in a hospital, obviously too sick to get up and murder somebody. But what if... He hypnotized himself not to be that way. <laughs> Here, I brought this out of my files for you. It's a UP story on the Hamburg Dateline, December 10th, 1948. Absolutely authenticated. Dr. Theodore Herr, a surgeon, operated on himself under self-hypnosis. Removed his appendix in an operation that took four and a half hours. He got up off the operating table and went to work for the rest of the day. No pain, no shock. I can't go along with this, doctor. I'm sorry. I tell you, that's what happened. Corvo hypnotized himself and slipped out of the hospital at 8 o'clock and went off and killed Mrs. Randolph as he threatened to do. Okay, but this is this is so good, too, is um, we got a line where apparently it's not enough that this is just fucking crazy and Bickford wouldn't buy it because no one ever would because it's insane. But Bickford's like, I know that's impossible because my wife died from gallbladder surgery. You're not helping your wife any with these loony theories, doctor. I happen to know what a gallbladder operation is like. Oh, man. That is a great bit. It's <laughs> like whoever wrote the script got a note from someone at Fox that was like, this, none of Bickford's reactions in this movie make any sense. And they went, ah, gallbladder widower. And then they went to lunch. Somehow Richard Conti, like, convinces a very hesitant and disbelieving Charles Bickford to 
take Jean to the scene of the crime to see if she remembers something because up until this point Jean's saying she has no memory of what exactly occurred why she was discovered in the location where she was discovered and Bigford is like oh well I guess sure we'll do that uh doesn't take any backup with him uh I'm not convinced he's a real police officer (laughs) (laughs) just just stumbled into the job (laughs) he's one of those stripper cops oh no there was a big mix-up in the phone book like this thing with trump this thing with trump in the four seasons when trump thought he booked the four seasons hotel in philadelphia and turned out he booked well he his team booked four seasons landscaping company or some shit in a strip mall between a crematorium and a sex shop and that's where giuliani found out that they'd called it While this is happening, Jose Ferrer is in hospital looking like shit, like really sweaty, obviously not doing great, and a very knowledgeable and kindly nurse just fills him in (laughs) about like all the details of the case. Yeah, she's like the other nurses were saying that um that there's some sort of recording of the dead lady and that they they've got a suspect now but they're not sure what like how do, they, how do you people know what's going on here like i haven't seen i haven't seen bigford do one press conference but yeah she basically just like oh they're really close to finding them they think they're gonna you know and once they do you know it's it, curtains for whoever really did this and so obviously jose Ferrer's like ah oh, shit gotta do something <laughs> Um, so he drags himself out of his sick bed and retrieves a mirror from his effects and then hypnotizes himself into just walking. being well. Um, <laughs> being able to walk again. <laughs> being able to commit crimes. I'm going into a deep trance. All pain is leaving me. I'm getting stronger. Stronger. There's no pain. Pain is gone. It doesn't hurt me. Nothing hurts me. I can move without pain. I can walk. I'm strong. Strong. I'm able to do what I want. It doesn't hurt. Well, he, he says, he says like, you're not going to feel any pain. You're not going to feel any pain. And my thing was like, if I'm recovering from surgery in 1949 or whatever, and I have the ability to make myself not feel pain, I'm going to be doing that like constantly. But he only does it when he has to fucking like yeah. commit a crime. This is why like, it's so crazy to me that so many people in Hollywood were so deeply involved with Christian science. Because that's exactly, I, again, I'm not a Christian scientist. I, I'm sorry if you are. I don't know why you'd be listening to this podcast. <laughs> but... Like Ginger Rogers was really, really deep into Christian Science, and which was, you know, with, uh, which is very popular at the time. And it's like basically, will yourself healthy? You can walk, you can walk, you can walk, and then you can walk. And I understand why a lot of highly effective people see weakness or suffering in others as like vulnerability. It's well, they don't see it as vulnerability; they see it as a weakness. Exactly, they see suffering as as a weakness. They see it as a it, what does Keith say in in the the Nexium Doc, what does Keith Raniere say? It's like uh, about the way you react to something, not the actual... Anyway, whatever. All those cults have... And belief systems, Christian science, don't come for me. 
the spirit of Mary Baker Eddy. But anyway, but that's basically what it is. Like, you know, tell yourself, I'm well, I'm well. I can walk again. I can walk in and then can walk in. And you understand why so many people in Hollywood were involved in this because they're already such extraordinary people with such extraordinary abilities that they completely do not understand that normal people don't function the way they do. And it also, of course, lends itself into being a goddamn fucking tax-evading fascist piece of shit because if I can get up and, and do this and make money and, 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 and you know, why, why, are, why are you stuck in that sick bed you piece of shit get yourself out of that iron lung unpolio yourself anyway whatever it's just funny it's just such a hollywood attitude christian science for the studio is basically you know that was what scientology ended up scientology ended up filling the void that christian science left anyway interesting stuff interesting stuff historically do you think ginger rogers ever hypnotized anybody yeah louise into marrying a <laughs> i love ginger I love ginger. I, I, when we say things like this, we don't mean it in a bad way. When I say, you know, somebody was a tax evading piece of shit, I can still like their movies. Yeah, I love ginger. Yeah. I think she was an incredible screen presence. Um, I love ginger. I love Stanwick. Yeah. I love Jimmy Stewart. Like Bill Holden killed a man. Yeah. He's one of my top 10 favorite actors, one of my favorite movie stars of all time. He killed a man. He straight up killed a man. Yeah. It's good to preface that we don't not enjoy the performances of these people if we make fun of them. It's just that we can be critical of the things that we enjoy and we have a healthy relationship with yes, these things. we have things. a completely healthy relationship. Completely. There's nothing unhealthy about any of the relationships that we have with any of these people. Parasocially. I would say we even make fun of the ones who we don't have like major personal issues with. So yeah. when you get to the point where they're actually kind of fascist, it's like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to rip on that, too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, there are people that we really actually do hate. Well, we love pissing on Reagan's grave. So, yeah, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of subtlety with, with those people. There's well, and as as Tiff expressed today, she fell asleep during the great dictator. Yeah, that was really hard. <laughs> I had to watch that for a paper I'm working on. And oh, boy. So fuck Charlie Chaplin is the core message. So after he hypnotizes himself into good health, Jose Ferrer makes it to Barbara O'Neill's house where he finds the record records and for some reason just starts listening to them <laughs> uh, instead of just like getting the fuck out of there. But it's at that time that Jean, Richard Conti and Charles Bickford arrive and Jose Ferrer, even though in the beginning Jean didn't have the presence of mind to react when the police and well, the security guards entered the house Apparently, Jose Ferrer's self-hypnosis works differently because he has the presence of mind to turn the record player off and then hide in the shadows while Jean sort of has this whole experience where her repressed memories come to the surface about what exactly happened that night. So I don't know what the go is with that. Just poor screenwriting, I guess. Also, when they're like, oh, the records aren't in the coat closet, where could they be? And no one thinks, what about the record player? <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of Jose Ferrer's, like, gloating Bond villain, you know, like, pre-escape bleeding to death on the staircase speech is being like, and you never even thought they'd be on the record player. Ah, ah, bitch, you thought. Yeah, because he, while Richard Conti and Charles Bickford are upstairs, look, because Charles Bickford goes up to the cupboard initially spends like three seconds <laughs> yeah. in there and then comes back down <laughs> and it's like, yeah, nothing in there. And it's like, obviously had a man's look. So then Richard Conte, I was like, they've got to be up there. And so they both go up there together. Um, and Jose Ferrer kind of like 
lurches out of the shadow with a gun and points it at Jean and is like, you're going to tell them that the records are upstairs giving me enough time to get away. And he keeps the gun on her when they come back downstairs. And Jean sort of says, oh, maybe we should get out of here. And she begins telling them to go look upstairs. And then she's like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I can't lie. And it's like, of all the times uh, to lie, now would be the one. But um, she says, I can't lie anymore. He's there. He's in the shadows. It's him. And obviously, Jose Furuka lurches out of the dark and he's bleeding heavily from his surgical wound and his kind of like hulkamania state uh is wearing off because apparently he put a time limit on his hypnosis this actually did surprise Uh, me though we see like a pretty realistic trail of blood yeah i don't think i've ever seen anything like that in a movie from this era no yeah it's pretty brutal yeah i'm not pretending terry i will kill you if you force me to and nobody will ever know who did it. Oh. Then he denounced you, Dr. Sutton. bleeding to death, Corvo. Look. He said he hated you. And that you were responsible for everything. Stay there. And I said yes. You'd better let us help you. Yes, Dr. Sutton has given me strength Stand back. to live as a human being. You're too clever for this, Corvo. You know you can't get away. I'm I've done many things too clever for you to understand. David Corvo, I've overlooked nothing. You'll never make it. I'm terrified. I'm afraid you're right. You'll never pay. Tonight I was a bit stupid. You know, he's like, I'm the one who did it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then and then he dies. <laughs> just fucking biffs it right on the staircase. Just, just dies. And then everyone's like, well, I guess that's that then. You know, nothing more to see here. And um, Charles Bickford's just like, well, I guess I can let Jean go now. That's it. All happy families. All done. Not like there's going to be any lingering trauma from this entire situation for anybody. And the daughter whose inheritance had been extorted. She's never getting that money back. He's dead. Yeah. And like he lived, he he lived in in a hotel, so it's not like he has any assets to sell. Everything about this movie, and and that seems like a fairly cogent plot, but just the little details are just so insane throughout. You know, that's the thing that really tickles me about this movie. Like at the scene at the party when Jose Ferrer is first like demonstrating his prowess to Jean, and he's like he reads this man, this like visiting, I don't know if he's supposed to be some sort of minor like count or prince or whatever at this party. And he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm an astrologer and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, oh, wacky, you know. And then Ferrer, like, rattles off this, like, list of, you know, details about this man. And he's like, and you've been having a lot of suicidal thoughts within the past few months. And the guy's like, I haven't told anyone. And I'm like, seems fairly intimate for a party. Yes, I do want to kill myself in front of everyone else at the party. I don't know. That I thought was really funny. And then Ferrer drops this line, too, as he's saying goodbye to that guy, where he's like, I hope your new marriage gives you something to live for, even if it's only a divorce. Yeah. I was like, whoa, dude. And the whole relationship between Conti and Jean is really funny, too, because at one point Jean's like, I wish I, with that Jean voice, I wish I knew more. I wish I, you know, knew more about, you know, science so that I could, you know, I could be your, your intellectual partner or whatever. And then Conti basically has this line that basically boils down to, I love you just the way you are. A moron, which I think is very sexy. A hush falls over the General Assembly as Stacy approaches the podium to deliver what will no doubt be a stirring and memorable address. I wish they taught shopping in school. Oh. Let's 
time, Stacy. I've waited my whole life to hear you speak. Don't you have anything relevant to say? Don't ask me. I'm just a girl. <laughs> right on. Say it, sister. He's like, you're just sweet and adorable and innocent. I don't know you do know anything. And then later on, she's like, you know, I resented him so much. And that's why I had to go out and steal mermaid pins. And you're like, there's a lot going on here. Physician, heal thyself. He's charging a lot of people a lot of money to fix a lot of other people's problems. And his wife is just out there popping off. It's a very nutty script. Uh, so obviously this is directed by Otto Preminger. So it brings in some of the flavor of Laura. Um, even the score is basically repurposed. David Raxon again. Just repurposing that score from Laura, just slightly different. This, however, was written by Ben Hecht. And if you don't know who that is, that is the man who wrote basically every movie that Hollywood seen. has ever produced. Parts of Shop Around the Corner and Foreign Correspondent. You know, just a whole lot of Hollywood films that you can think of. He's probably involved in some way, you know, Suspicion and uh, Angels Over Broadway. Uh, front Page, I think, is probably... The front page, yeah. yeah. The front page is probably the, the most famous project of his. But for the release of this film in particular, he, in British prints of this film, uh, they had to censor his name to Lester Barstow because um, Ben Hecht was a full-on Zionist. So expressed some very anti-British interventionist views. So there was a period of his life where he had to use pseudonyms. So that's the interesting note on the writing for this movie, um, that it was written by someone who was very well respected in Hollywood and still came up with this. <laughs> How did Richard Conti die? Charles Bickford died of a blood infection. <gasps> a stitch infection. Well, here you go. On April 3, 1975, Conte suffered a massive heart attack and stroke. He was taken to UCLA Medical Center where staff worked on him for eight hours. Uh, then he was put into intensive care but died on April 15. Well, that's no fun. So, it's no fun. fun. Anyone die a funny death? Like <laughs> roller skating out a window instead of this movie? <laughs> well, I do know this because um, Constance Collier's last screen role, this movie. She didn't die until 55. Um, she might have just had, like, enough. Well, I mean, that very relatable to me, but... I was thinking about Charles Bickford, and I was looking at uh, East of Borneo, 1931, which today is probably best known for being the source material for Rose Hobart, which is um, a very early experimental film. Very cool, actually. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, really interesting to see. It was kind of like a like a film collage kind kind of kind of work, um, isolating some of Rose Hobart, the actress's scenes from the movie East of Borneo it's from 1936, uh, the Joseph Cornell piece, Rose Hobart. Very cool. Look it up. But that's what East of Borneo is known for today. However, East of Borneo co-stars an actor whose name I cannot pronounce called Georges Renavant. It's French. Georges Renavant. This is in 1914. He immigrated to the United States crossing the frontier between Canada and Vermont. Anyway, he, his wife was blacklisted her she was selena royal whose father wrote the squaw man point is this is the third paragraph on his wikipedia page our fourth co-host wikipedia they left the united states to live in mexico after selena was entangled in the mccarthy era communism investigations and hollywood blacklist while in mexico both selena and george continued to be <laughs> active in the arts and put out various cookbooks including pheasants for peasants a gringa's guide to mexican cooking and guadalajara as i know it live it love it <laughs> 
I'm proud of him. I think it's insane. It says his daughter died in 2010. Can you imagine being the offspring of people involved, however tangentially, in the Squaw Man and then dying in 2010? Well, who was it? What was the um, president whose grandson? Oh, John Tyler. Yeah, that's fucked John up. Tyler's, John Tyler was born in 1790 and his grandson just died like a couple of weeks ago. That's fucked up. That's fucked up. We should do something someday with like celebrity cookbooks. <gasps> Vincent Price had like 45 Vincent of them. Vincent Price one. Yeah, my uncle has one of the Vincent Price ones. There's that one that uh, was written. They did a couple like charity ones I've seen. And then a lot of the fan mags have like terrible recipes. And I remember us making fun of one that Norma Shearer had that was like, my mother used to make this for me on our cold Canadian mornings. It was just like oatmeal. Yeah. We were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Norma, your mom invented oatmeal. Cool. <laughs> Uh, so when it was released, um, staff at Variety liked the film and said it was highly entertaining, exciting melodrama that combines authentic features of hypnosis. Um, I'll take their word for it. But Otto Preminger in his direction have eliminated the phony characteristics that might easily have allowed the picture to slither into becoming another eerie melodrama. So, I mean, I don't know if there's a true depiction of hypnosis. Because I don't know if you can hypnotize yourself is my big thing. I also don't think, from what I gather, please, if you are a professional hypnotist, please <laughs> leave a comment. I don't know if you can hypnotize people into doing something they wouldn't have done. You know, it's kind of like the argument, you don't do something while drunk that you really wouldn't have done sober. Well, that's the thing, though. They do make a point of that in the movie where it's like you can't hypnotize something into doing something they're morally against. Yeah. And obviously, like, Jean was the mark because she is a thief. Yes, exactly. Well, so I guess in the way the movie would be realistic. However, I'm not sure how realistic it is the, the thing where Frere walks up to that guy at the party and knows all those things about him. I don't know no. about that. Yeah, I'm, I don't buy that. It's like some kind of mentalist power play going on. Because then he's like, well, I interviewed his wife and, you know, she told me all these things about him. And then Jean's just like, oh, that's funny. That's funny. And it's like... It's cool that he... you gather information on people and then use it to manipulate them. Yeah. no issues here for our, our friendship. Uh, everybody's favorite New York Times film critic, Bosley Crowther, uh, gave the film a mixed review because obviously there's no pleasing him. As we say, this flapdoodle, written by Ben Hecht and Andrew Salt um, from a novel by Guy Endor, has been handsomely produced and played by a cast which is distinguished by Jose Ferrer in its midst. Okay. Um, Mr. Ferrer, the Broadway champion, is the smooth, piercing villain of the piece who mouths Mr. Heck's silken praises with acid savour and burns folks with his eyes. Furthermore, haughty Jean Tierney plays the lady who is slightly off the track, and Charles Bickford and Richard Conti are the detective and then-husband, respectively. Altogether, along with several others, the la they labour to cast a spell. But their efforts are bleakly artificial – You'd better see this one in a state of trance. And it's like any man who likes Jose Ferrer over Gene Tierney deserves to be drawn and quartered. Charles Bickford could have flown out to New York and filleted 
Buzz the Crowther, and he still wouldn't have liked the movie. I don't think he ever liked a movie at all. No, I don't think he ever liked a movie with a woman in it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I have to read this from the uh, Wikipedia page of the guy who wrote the book that the movie was based on, because this is weird. Uh, Throughout his career, Endor showed himself to be fascinated with hypnotism and the inability of characters to control their own actions. Mad Love, Peter Lorre's American debut, involves a man who, after an accident, is fitted with the hands of a murderer, which try to continue their gruesome career. His novel Methinks the Lady, which was made into a movie with Gene Tierney, which is this one, centered around a woman being affected by a quack hypnotist. And then even his Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers comedy Carefree still includes Rogers being put under hypnosis. Oh, no. oh my god. This guy had, like... A hypnosis fetish, I think. I was going to say that absolutely is some, some sort of mind control fetish. Okay, here's the absolutely crazy thing. So the screenplay is co-written by Andrew Salt, right? S-O-L-T. I completely misheard when you said that, and I looked up Andrew Salter, okay? So I go to his Wikipedia page. Andrew Salter was the founder of Condition Reflex Therapy, an early form of behavior therapy, uh, which emphasized assertive and expressive behavior as the way to combat the inhibitory personality traits which Salter believed were the underlying cause of most neuroses. In the 1940s, Salter introduced to American psychotherapy a Pavlovian model of hypnotherapy and self-hypnosis training. Is that a weird coincidence? There's too much going on here. I feel like I've been hypnotized. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you go down, okay, it says that uh, in the original Frank Sinatra film, The Manchurian Candidate, the Chinese cite Salter's work as their inspiration to brainwash the soldiers. And Salter's conditioned reflex therapy was a part of the list of books owned by Marilyn Monroe auctioned at Christie's in 1999. Marilyn was trying to hypnotize herself. Well, Candace did ask for crazy, and she got it. Well, if you go to the actual Andrew P. Salt, who wrote this, co-wrote this, he also wrote In a Lonely Place Ah. uh, and the Elizabeth Taylor Little Women. I definitely think the shining star in this is Jean. She always is. I think she has an incredible innate ability to draw sympathy from the audience in whatever role she's in, um, which obviously nobody else in this cast is able to do. Ferrer is a perfectly serviceable actor, and I understand that he was an important Broadway star, but again, a Broadway star is not a movie star make, and the camera loves Jean. Jean was born for the camera. I guess the other person who really does an interesting performance is Charles Bigfoot, because what the fuck is he doing the entire time? Really phone this one in. <laughs> I think Bigfoot's very fun in this. He's fucking nuts. I love the bit at the end when uh, uh, Gene and Richard Conti are, like, kind of smooching and making up, and he's just standing there like, I'm here to solve a crime. And it's like, well, you're not really, but, you know, I still get it. You've done nothing <laughs> this entire time. I like You've the, done nothing. the bit when Conti calls him, and he's like, we gotta go do, you know, whatever Scooby-Doo bullshit they're doing, and and it's like next to Bickford's bed, there's like a portrait of this woman, you know, just to emphasize the fact that his wife died in a gallbladder crisis. <laughs> I mean, it's like, just in case you forgot. Oh, I seem to have offended you. I take it from your unpoliceman-like blushes that you're a happily married man. I was. She died last month. Sorry. Gallbladder operation like yours. Only it didn't turn out so well. I love Jean. I think Jean's incredible. I think she's a brilliant movie star. I think she's a great actress. Jean could walk all over me, literally. Uh, I like the part in the movie. Okay, back to Fee. This is what I was thinking of earlier. She's, like, been hypnotized to, like, go to bed at 11 o'clock, right? And so she comes into their, their bedroom and they've got their tasteful, you know, little, like, you know, 
Lucy and, and Ricky beds. And um, Conti's sitting there, and she comes over, and she's like, oh, I think I'm going to go to bed. And he's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then she just, like, immediately just, like, passes out, you know, because she's hypnotized. And then he's like, oh, you. And he comes over, and he's like, you got your shoes on. You still got your slippers on. You still got your slippers. And she's not, like, not waking up. So he goes over, and he, like, pulls her slipper off her foot. And I remark while we were watching this that because she's walking around on a set, he, like, grabs it by the sole. People only do that in movies, because in real life, you would never grab a shoe that way. But you do in a movie, because there's no real, you know, detritus accumulating. Anyway, I always think that's... Did you just say detritus as detritus? (laughs) Well, how did I pronounce memorabilia, either? I think I said, like, memorabilia. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with my mouth. And then in the... uh, You're really sundowning. I really am sundowning. What time is it? It's 9.40. I am sundowning. I'm, like, in that that M. Night Shyamalan movie, where they go to see their grandparents. (laughs) Grandma. I was just running around in my underwear, pissing myself and scratching doors until my fingers go bloody. Definitely, I'd say watch this movie if you want to see Gene, but then you could also watch any other movie that Gene is in. But I mean, you could be interested, as interested as the man who wrote the novel in (laughs) Hypnosis. And if so, then this is the movie for you. Tiff, how many... Records where you most but also least expect them to be, would you give this out of 10? I'd say like a 6. It's pretty average. Uh, I think it suffers from a lack of Dana Andrews. I don't know who I'd cast him as, but <laughs> as long as we're getting the gang back together. Um, obviously, Dana Andrews would be the doctor who operates. <laughs> <laughs> I can literally hear Dana now being like, there's a stitch in <laughs> Has do a lot of sewing inside there. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but it's it's funnish. It's fucking weird when he hulks out and goes like full Terminator and hypnotizes him. That was insane. That was absolutely crazy. It's, it's a good payoff. Yeah, I'll say yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's probably worth watching for that if you're into into Gene, which you should be. Um, Candace, how many dead gallbladder wives out of ten <laughs> would you give this movie? I'd give this movie like six. Yeah, I think six is a, is a good, you know, it, it, it's a, it's, it captures the novelty of the movie, but not really, there's no execution here. Um, frankly, this man did better work on his various other hypnosis-themed projects, of which there are apparently so many. <laughs> uh, Amelia, how many um, HIPAA violations via nurse break room gossip did you give this movie out of ten? <laughs> I'm going to give it... Six and a half. Um, I think that while it is, you know, very ridiculous and, I mean, there are better examples of both Otto Preminger's work and Otto Preminger's work with specifically Gene Tierney, I think that is an interesting novelty of its time. And I just think a lot of the shots of Gene are really, really nice. And she gets to wear her hair down in a lot of the a lot of the shots. And, I mean, just for the monogrammed clothing alone, it's worth it. That's it on that. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, as always. Uh, you can let us know what you thought of this episode on our socials, at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you listen, that would be a great help. Uh, yeah, as always, um, stay safe. Wear a mask. And we also have, like, a ton of Noir episodes. I think we have, like, eight in our archives at this point, uh, not including this one. And not including Cape Fear, which I guess I could have included. But anyway, there's a list of them uh, in a thread on our Twitter if you're interested in hearing those and you haven't already. 
So, yeah. And hey, if there's a noir that you'd want to see us cover, let us know. Um, and we'll keep it either for next year or just to do randomly when we've run out of ideas. So, yeah. Bye. Walk straight into Jesus' songs. They're outstretched for you. Because Jesus is the point guard in basketball. <laughs> okay. Point guard does? I don't know. <laughs> The point guard, the guy with the arms? Uh no. Is the is the okay, Google search. Is the point guard the guy? Most basketball with the players arms? have arms. <laughs> okay. Um oh, I don't know anything about basketball. Who's the guy with the arms? Which basketball man? <laughs> which basketball player has the longest has the <laughs> arms? <laughs> Do centers... Okay, I'm not going to be able to answer this question to my satisfaction, so we're just going to have to move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a more accessible reference, I think. I assumed you, you guys had seen Murder by Death. It's only got, you know, approximately half the people in old Hollywood in the movie, but that's okay. Um, Sorry, I haven't seen every movie. Well, it's a Niven movie, so you should have seen every David Niven movie at this point. There's oh, no you overestimate my tolerance for David Niven. Whoa, time out. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Them's fighting words. Uh, we all know I'd win in a fight. You would win in a fight. But when I fell over, it would be really impressive. Like, Take a long time for me to hit the ground. Anyway, keep talking. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know what podcast this is. I don't know who you people are. Oh, he did the, no, he did the, the 1949 Little Women. Yeah, that's what she said. Oh, I completely thought she said, I'm sorry. Uh, for some reason, my brain heard Elizabeth Taylor as 1933. And I don't know how <laughs> that happened.